0: Welcome to our Didache Divine Service. This is number 27 for the year, uh, resuming after our Holy Week and Easter Week uh, break. We are in the section of the Catechism Confession in the Office of the Keys. Just before our break, we had begun that section, and we saw it as a continuation of the last portion of the sacrament of Holy Baptism, The daily significance of our baptism is that we live by contrition and repentance, confession of sins, and receiving the Lord's loving word of forgiveness is central to the Christian faith and life. So we'll continue that today with an extended narrative of King David and how Nathan is called by God to be a pastor to David. And to call him to repentance and to minister the Lord's word to him. So we have, after today, four sessions left for the Didache Divine Service uh, for this year as we continue to move through the conclusion of the Catechism, the sacrament of the altar. But let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Spare us, O Lord, and mercifully forgive us our sins. Though by our continual transgressions we have merited your chastisements, be gracious to us. Grant that all these punishments, which we have deserved, may not come upon us, but that all things may work to our everlasting good. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. You will notice in the Lutheran Catechesis, the icon for this lesson under confession, where we study Nathan's ministry to David, is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And when we talked about that, it was under the third article of the Creed, The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of bringing Christ to us. To say it a different way, Christ ministers to us by the Holy Spirit through preaching, through holy baptism, through the Lord's Supper, and through confession and holy absolution. So the Holy Spirit makes it possible for the ministry of Jesus to be all over the world, multiplied 10,000 times over, not located only in one place, here in Sussex, Wisconsin, but in Accra, Ghana, and in Obed-Edom, Nigeria, and in Kenya, and in Sweden, and Germany, and all of these places. Remember the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Judas Iscariot, in impenitence, rejected the washing of the Lord. That washing was all about the forgiveness of sins. He who is bathed were bathed in baptism and declared clean, righteous. And yet we need the Lord's ongoing ministry of love in the forgiveness of sins. So I said last time we were together, think of the absolution as the Lord's I love you. Okay. So I have you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you haven't already done so. And if you haven't, while you're turning to that, in John chapter 3... The Apostle John records Jesus' words in his catechesis with Nicodemus, who came to him by night. He was a Pharisee, a member of the council of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said, you know, no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus talks to him about baptism. It's in that section that we have one of the most famous passages of Jesus, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in that same section, a couple of verses later, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the reason I quote that passage to you today is because that's how we should think of the ministry of our pastors. <laughs> God did not send your pastor to you to condemn you, Mary, but that through the ministry of Christ that he gives that you would be saved. That's the bottom line. That that's always has to be kept in mind by the pastors as well as by the baptized faithful. So that even when my pastor says something to me that's hard to hear, the response should not be, I'm going to get him. I'm going to let him have it. But rather, is he preaching God's word? And if he's faithful when he's preaching and it hurts me, maybe I need to hear that law so that I see my sin and I'm brought to repentance for it. Okay? Okay. Nathan is going to be sent to David with some hard words to say. As I often say in this catechesis on this, I wouldn't have wanted to have been Nathan because he is sent to one of the greatest theologians in the Old Testament, King David, who wrote more psalms of the 150 psalms than any other single psalm writer. He was not only the king, but he was a theologian. But a sinner, like everyone is, Tom, right. But I still would have been chicken, okay, not wanting to go to him. All right, so I have the first bullet here. What is the story of David's life and faith leading up to 2 Samuel 11 when he commits adultery with Uriah the Hittite's wife, whose name is Bathsheba? Her name is not given in this chapter, but we learn the name later. He was one of how many sons of Jesse? Susan? Eight. And he's the eighth. He's the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. He's a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz and Ruth, if you remember that wonderful love story, uh, Ruth was a Moabite. So David, King David from the tribe of Judah, had Moabite blood in him. The tribe of Judah, the house of David, is the lineage of our Lord Jesus. But do you remember what David was called when he was chosen? It's an interesting dichotomy because, on the one hand, Eliab, he's the firstborn. This has got to be the one, right? Firstborn son of Jesse. No, he's not the one. And they go all the way down the line until it comes to David. And the Lord tells Samuel, the prophet, no. I do not judge by outward appearance, but by the heart. But what's interesting is David is still described as ruddy and good-looking. So so that he was judging by the heart didn't mean that that, uh, he was only going to choose ugly people to be king or something like that. But the point of the matter is the heart is the place of faith. And you remember how David is described, a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Well, the heart of God is the seat of his affections, just as it is the seat of our affections and of our faith. God is love, the sacrificial, self-giving love. At the heart of that love is mercy. We describe that unique love of God in terms of grace, his undeserved love and compassion. So when David is called, he is a man after God's own heart. So he believed in the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the promise that God made to Abraham of the seed of Abraham that would bring the blessing of salvation to all nations. Now, King Saul, whom David ended up serving, remember as a shepherd boy, he would play the harp for him when Saul was beset by troubling spirits. And then when there was the challenge, the Philistine army against the Israelite army And the champion Goliath came out. It was David who sent on a mission from his father to bring supplies to his brothers and the troops. Said, what's going on here? Well, there's this challenge. They're looking for one man to stand up against this champion of the Philistines. And David considers it to be an an affront to God. And so he says, I will go. And I will Go in the name of the Lord and confront this Philistine Goliath. And he takes the five smooth stones and he embeds one right in the skull of the giant. He falls over dead. He cuts off his head with Goliath's own spear or huge, humongous sword. And from that day forward, he has the affection of the whole congregation of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands. David, his ten thousands. So Saul, who struggled to believe in the Lord because he was full of such pride and self-righteousness himself, um, envied David from that day forward, even though David had done so much for King Saul's uh, reign and for the nation of Israel. But Saul is noted uh, as being the one who then, ends up hunting David down, trying to kill him, trying to destroy him. He'd thrown a spear at him at one occasion when he was uh, playing the harp and trying to comfort him and so forth. And Saul vacillated back and forth, I'm sorry, I've sinned. And then he'd send his troops after him. And David had numerous occasions uh, where he could have killed Saul. But David says, I will not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. He shows compassion upon Saul, even though Saul certainly didn't deserve it. Well, after Saul's death, David assumes the throne. And after a couple of years, all 12 tribes of Israel are under his authority as king. By the time 2 Samuel 11 comes along, the Lord had given David victory over his enemies, had established his reign as king, and that puts us where we're at today. The background of David's life is important because, to use New Testament language, David was a Christian. David was a faithful Christian. He was a faithful believer in the Lord's promise of salvation. He was a faithful theologian. He was the bishop and the king of the congregation of Israel. And this man, who was all of that, fell into grievous sin. Second bullet on your point here is staying within one's vocation or station in life is a deterrent to sin and foundational for the holy life. So, The work that you're given to do may be a drag at times. And the responsibilities that you have may be difficult at times. But staying within your vocation, your station in life, is a deterrent to getting into trouble. Okay? And so at the beginning we have, it came to pass, this is chapter 11, verse 1, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, if this is the time that kings go out to battle against enemies who are oppressing them and David the king stays at home in Jerusalem and lets the troops handle things. This is an example of what we just said. Staying within one's station and calling is a deterrent against sin. If he had been out on the battlefield, he certainly would not have been in a position to have coveted another man's wife and then engaged her in an act of adultery. So verse 2 goes on. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed <clears throat> and walked on the roof of the king's house. So the king's house being likely the highest house in uh, the city. And from the roof in the Mediterranean world, that was, you know, there was no air conditioning in those days. So going out on the roof on a hot evening, you get the cool night air and breeze. So he goes out, he's able to gaze upon his kingdom, the city of David, Jerusalem. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David went and inquired about the woman. Who is she? Does she have a husband? And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I guess I misspoke before. It is of Bathsheba. Not all of of the manuscripts maybe have that. Uh, Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah is not Israelite. He's Hittite. And we learn that he serves in the army of David, so he is a kind of mercenary. Then David sent messengers and Took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, she was not menstruating, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so that she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Do you think that is David's main concern at this point? John? I don't think so so either. It is a ruse to try to cover up his real intentions. It's plausible, though. You get a dispatch from the... Front lines of the army, how is the war faring? How are the troops doing? It's certainly a plausible scenario. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, if you're a man and you have a beautiful woman like Bathsheba, because the prophet says that she was very beautiful to behold, and you've been away on battle, you go down to your house to wash your feet, and maybe with some wine and food from the king your commander you're in a position to make love to your wife why would David want that to happen (laughs) to cover up what he'd done so when it is found out that she is pregnant her husband Uriah would say well I was home on leave that must be when she became Pregnant, even though she was pregnant by another man, in this case, the king. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house... So you see how his soldiers were complicit in the, his servants, in the conspiracy to cover up what he had done. David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house, which is what I really wanted you to do so that you could spend time with your wife? And Uriah said to David, the ark, that's the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my lord Joab, who's the commander of David's army, and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now what's exposed here is who is the more honorable one staying within his vocation, his calling? Uriah the Hittite, he's not even Israelite. And here the king of Israel from the tribe of Judah is the one who has been unfaithful to his responsibilities and calling. Now, Nathan doesn't accuse the king of being unfaithful, but how can I do such a thing when the ark... Now, his reference to the ark... And his service there indicates that this Uriah the Hittite was himself a believer who had embraced the God of Israel. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also while I think of some other scheme, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, He ate and drank before him, and he, that is David, made him, Uriah, drunk. Why does David continue to pour expensive scotch or whatever he is uh, for Uriah? What happens when a person gets inebriated? Or if they don't know what they're doing, or what happens to their willpower? It it often dissipates. That's right. So if he didn't go go down to his house when he was sober, maybe he'll go down when he's drunk. And, well, if he does go down when he's drunk and if he doesn't remember what happens, at least it's plausible later on that he can know Mm -hmm. what had happened. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Wow. Then in the morning it was so that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is amazing. David the king writes an official letter, seals it with his signet ring that is actually a letter calling for the assassination of Uriah, and he gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. That is pretty amazing. Brazen, isn't it? And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he, may die, that he may be struck down and die. So David makes plain to Joab his intention. I want Uriah killed in the battle. Again, to cover up his crimes. Now you would say, well, how would that cover up his crimes? Would not... Uh, it eventually come out that Bathsheba is pregnant. Yes, however, according to the kinsman laws, Uriah the Hittite being a foreigner, there is no kinsman, near kinsman redeemer, to be husband to her and care for her, this woman who would become a war widow. So David's intention, which is made clear at the end, is he gets rid of the husband so that he can then take Bathsheba in and in the noble gesture, marry her, be husband to her, and then all will be well. And then, of course, he comes up smelling like a rose, so to speak, to the general population. What a great guy he is. He even takes care of, of the war widows of a foreigner, a Hittite. Professor? Yes, Tom. By the law, wouldn't um, Bathsheba and David, if they were found out, they'd be stoned? Uh, yes, usually by uh, the sin of adultery, the punishment is Bathsheba uh, is uh, is uh, stoning Bathsheba. Okay. I mean, even a king. Uh, well, that didn't happen too often. Do you know Do you know of? Do you know of politicians in very, very high office that, that break the law, that get in trouble? Have I said, do I need to say more? It, it, it's you pleads, Tom, like you. You get in trouble, but not kings and presidents, okay? All right, so it happened while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. And so I'm going to skip over uh, some of this for the sake of uh, time. Uh, Joab sends a messenger to David with explicit kind of instructions so that the message can get through to David. The problem is handled. And it would again be... um, plausible that a messenger is going to report to the king the outcome of the battle. And since Uriah the Hittite seemed to have been someone who was valued at a certain point, he has been killed. But what I will show you is in verse 24, the archer shot from the wall. This is the servant telling David, at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite died, is dead also. Verse 25, then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. Don't be too concerned about this. Why? For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. You know, people die in battle, even though David was directly responsible, and it was murder. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So he seems to have, at this point, gotten Away with it. Now, I wanted to read through most of the narrative through the end of chapter 11. Now, let's summarize by going to the bullet points that I've given you. Where did David's sin begin? That's the third bullet down the sheet. Where did it begin? In his heart. In his heart. With the sin of what? Lust. Lust covetousness under the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He absolutely desired her, and her desire for her, this beautiful woman, uh, led him into all manner of transgressions. The next bullet, though, I want to focus on the fourth commandment specifically. How did, the sin, uh, did he sin against the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is honor your father and your mother. Now, you could say, well, he dishonored his father and mother, but that's not, that would be true, even though they're dead by this time. But they'd still be dishonoring their memory. But that's not the point of the question. How does he dishonor the fourth or break the fourth commandment? How does he sin against it? The fourth commandment not only applies to children and citizens, it also applies to parents and. parents and. and government officials. So how does he sin against the fourth commandment, Polly? He stepped away from his vocation. Okay, can we say it another way? The authority from God that he'd been given as a civil ruler. He, ab- he abuses. He misuses it. He didn't abandon it. He misused it, didn't he? So it's, it's, here's an example of a civil ruler who, whether it's civil law or God's law, he transgresses it. Just because you're a civil ruler and you stand in God's Shoes doesn't give you the authority to overturn the law. So he uses his office and the authority given him by God. No one else could have arranged for all of this except someone who wielded that kind of authority. This is where I sometimes do my uh, Bill Clinton impression as the governor of Arkansas. Can you go down and find that woman, Miss Lewinsky? Uh, sends the uh, but I won't do my impression today. Now, <laughs> But he uses his office, he misuses, and that's the fourth commandment, is the first commandment in the second table of the law. And it is the first commandment in the second table of the law because the civil authority of a father or mother or of an earthly ruler is from God. The first table of the law, you know, our relationship to God, therefore the first commandment under the second table of the law, number four, is the first and foremost, of that second table in our relationship to one another. So he misuses, transgresses the authority of God that he had been given as a ruler. The next question, though, we need to ask, how did David transgress all the commandments? The Apostle James says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. And among other things, what the Apostle there is teaching is that the law is like A sweater that your mother made for you. She carefully knitted it. And oh, there's a loose thread. I'll just pull this one thread. And then all of a sudden, the entire sweater is a pile of unraveled yarn on the floor. Okay? It's all interconnected. How did he transgress the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Who did he make a god out of? Ultimately, himself. You could say he made a God out of that woman and the pleasure that being with a beautiful woman would give. But ultimately, his God was himself. Second commandment, how did he misuse the name of the Lord his God? Now, on the one hand, you could say anytime time we transgress. Like if you were a, a teenager and you took your dad's car keys and you went out with the car and you got drunk and you wrapped it around a tree you are dishonoring your father's name by that transgression. But remember what the second commandment also says, that we should fear and love God so that we call upon him in every trouble, including temptation. Pray, praise, give thanks. So in the face of temptation, he lusts. He covets another man's wife. He sees her. He doesn't turn away and say, Lord, have mercy. Forgive me this sin of covetousness and lust. Strengthen me against this temptation. Oh, no. He doesn't pray under the second commandment for God's help. He indulges his appetites. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day. It's not just about a day. It is about the word of God. Did he turn away from the teachings of God's word to commit adultery and then to arrange this grand conspiracy to cover it up? Absolutely. He could have at any time. Pardon me? He could have stopped at any time. Well, he could have stopped at any time, but... Oh, what a tangled web we weave whene'er we practice to deceive. So, you know, this conspiracy kept going and going, and by inertia, you know, it, it, he did not stop it. He saw it through to the end. And as he continued in that, in a certain sense, the sin piled up, didn't it, in terms of, of the transgression of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so Fourth Commandment, we've already talked about. Fifth Commandment, you shall not murder. Did he sin against that commandment? absolutely. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, duh. Uh, Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Now, this may be harder for you, but according to the inheritance laws, here Bathsheba is married to a Hittite. There is no other relative there since he's a Hittite. When he marries the woman, he not only gets the wife of the deceased man, but any property. Isn't that a fantastic deal? So he acquires the property of Uriah the Hittite, if there was any. Did he transgress the Eighth Commandment concerning false testimony? Well, the whole thing was a conspiracy of lies, right? That he brought others into it as the king, his, his servants, Joab, and so forth. Uh, the Ninth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Remember what the catechism says, we should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house. That's what we just talked about. It's linked to the seventh commandment about stealing. This grand conspiracy was a scheme. He wasn't particularly interested in the inheritance of, of Uriah the Hittite, but by concocting this conspiracy and this scheme, he obtained his inheritance again in order to cover his sin. And then finally, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant. Well, he coveted his wife. This is where it all began with the lust of the heart. Okay. Um, At this point, I'll say, no wonder David would later write in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. Uh, It is not simply that he broke a commandment or two, but he who is from his conception a sinner, fully indulged the appetites and desires of his sinful flesh. And look at the destruction that came in its wake, the destruction of a marriage, the destruction of a man's life. The collateral damage that would then be brought on the kingdom as Nathan will later tell him that strife and warfare and hardship will, no long, will not depart from David's kingdom as long as he reigns. So, none of the sins that we commit are ever in isolation. There's always implications, ramifications to those, to those acts. All right. Come, let's. I, I will take a, a pause to see if you have any question you really have a passionate desire to ask for chapter 11. Because now we've got to go into the ministry of Nathan to him. Eunice? Do you know what genealogy that she was, what she was? I don't know at this point in time. Maybe that's knowable, but I don't know it. Okay. All right. Her, her uh, A counselor of David was her grandfather, did you say? Her father? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Chapter 12 then. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. What a sweet story. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. Now pause right there for a moment. Who is the poor man? No, who's the poor man? Uriah. Who's the rich man? David, who's the ewe lamb? Bathsheba. Now I ask in the bullets here, oh, I I wanted to ask this other question here after all of this. How might David have thought he was justified in trying to cover up his sin? Yeah, for the good of the people. I, I wanted to make this point. I'm glad I looked down at my bullets so that I could come back to it. Um, rationalization is a very, very strong emotion. The end justifies the means. We often think that. So imagine, David, I'm the king. I knew I did wrong by committing adultery. But if my adultery becomes known, Yes, I should forfeit the kingdom, Tom, or I should be stoned or something. The the greater good will not be served if my transgressions are made public. And it's not like I'm murdering Uriah the Hittite. If God wants to save him from the archers on the front lines of the battle, God can save him. I mean, not everybody died on D-Day, right, when the beaches of Normandy were... The percentage of death was high, but not everybody died in the front lines, okay? So there's lots of ways in which we try to justify ourselves. David would have been no exception. And then I ask this other question, and it's related here now to what's coming up. As a Christian, what was David's greatest sin? As a Christian, Polly? Polly? When he put himself before God, when he broke the first commandment, um, I think you could absolutely say that. What I'd like you to think about is in terms of law and gospel. The Ten Commandments declare what God's law is. The gospel proclaims the love of God for the sinner. What I'd like you to consider here is that David transgressed not only the Ten Commandments, not only God's law, but he transgressed the love of God, okay? He transgressed the mercy of God that made him king, that forgave him his sins. He sinned against the God who loved him, who had saved him, who had established his kingdom as a gift of God's grace. It's why some of you who have been around uh, a while might recall me saying things like this, that... A non-Christian can feel horribly and guilty about their sin. And when a non-Christian is called to repentance and can feel the sorrow for sin, genuine sorrow of faith, that's one thing. But when a Christian who has known the love of God turns away from it, like the prodigal son, which was the last narrative we had before our break, it wasn't simply that he lived a wild life, but he sinned against his father's love. Remember? So that can add even more pain to the conscience of a Christian than than mere transgression of the law. What have I done? I've sinned against the God who loved me. Okay. Now, you come in here with this. I ask the next question, uh, how is the divine call to Nathan to be David's pastor expressed? It's in verse 1. The Lord sent him. Yeah. So this is a divine call. The Lord sent him to David. Okay? So I don't want to channel the Blues Brothers movie from decades ago, but he was on a mission from God. But Nathan was. He was on a mission from God. Now, I do ask now the next question directly. Why does Nathan confront David with a parable about a rich man and a poor man? And it's related to this question about David sinning not against, not only against the Ten Commandments, God's law, but also against the gospel and his love. Why does he confront him with a parable? Any thoughts on it? I may let the question just hang there. Eunice? Well, like in the New Testament, doesn't it say in some places that God will give you the very Well, obviously, obviously, the Lord was speaking through Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an example of a skillful uh, uh, steward of law and gospel. C.F.W. Walter called it the art of proclaiming the law and the gospel. You know, as I say quite often, I I would have been more inclined to go directly up to David, since we got David sitting right here. What's the matter with you? You've committed adultery. You murdered Uriah, you know, right between the eyes. But that's not what Nathan does. You know, to, uh, Cherie? To um, remind David of his compassion. To remind David of his compassion. There's a reason why. Uh, Mary? I was going to say, you know, sometimes when you kind of lead up with a story, you make it softer. So he actually listens. So he actually listens. Okay. I think part of the, some of these things are part of the skill, the art of applying law and gospel. Because, again, where did I begin? Jesus' words, Christ Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Nathan is sent to David not to condemn David, even though David needs to hear the condemnation that he deserves and say it would be just if God executed me for my sin. That would be justice. But that's not the purpose of Nathan being sent to him. So when I confront you with your sin, it's not the same as when the police officer comes to your door, puts the handcuffs on you, David, reads you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. You know, anything you say can be held held against you in a court of law. His purposes are different than mine. Both serve God's purposes. But the minister of the gospel, his desire is to save this person's soul from condemnation. Okay? So Nathan confronts David. I want you to think about the parable of the prodigal son. What was it that called that son home? He, he, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. What called the prodigal son home? The father's love. The father's love. It was not the father's wrath. If he had only known his father to be a spiteful, vengeful, wrathful judge, the prodigal son never would have returned. So part of what Nathan is doing in the telling of this story is appealing to what God had made David in the first place. It's why we went through the story. David had been a man after God's own heart. Who made him a man after God's own heart? The Lord had. Okay? David had believed in the mercy of God. Who created that faith in him? The Lord had. When King Saul, you know, he was squatting in the dark cave, picking up his robe, doing his uh, duty, his morning constitution or whatever it was, David's in there. He's, Saul was a sitting duck. He does not kill him. He clips off the corner of his robe to show it to him afterwards when he's outside and on the other side. He had had compassion on King Saul, okay? So this is what David had sinned against. Again, it's why I asked the question, you know, yeah, he sinned against all Ten Commandments. We've established that, but he sinned against the God who loved him and who made him the man of compassion and mercy in the first place, okay? So, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity, no compassion. You see, that's exactly what Nathan was appealing to in the parable. Now, David pronounces the judgment of the law Punishment by death and restitution, he shall restore fourfold. Now, talk about between the bullseye. All Nathan has to say, because out of David's own mouth has come the the judgment of God's law. Nathan says, you are the man. Right between the proverbial eyes. So I ask the question... As the prodigal son came to himself, what was Nathan's calling? What was Nathan calling David to return to? Again, this mercy of God, this love of God that had made him a man after God's own heart in the first place. Does the law allow for any self justification? Yeah, I did this, but it wasn't my fault. No self justification. David says, and then he'll say at the end, I have sinned. The man who has done this shall surely die. In the Christian questions and answers in the Catechism, it says, What have you deserved from God because of your sin? Temporal death and eternal punishment. And that's how that's expressed in the text. He shall die and shall restore fourfold. Now, the next question how does Nathan frame David's sin? Look at what Nathan says. You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now, notice what the Lord, this is from the Lord, is saying through Nathan. He is extolling his what? What is the Lord extolling, lifting up, highlighting? His love, that's right. I made you king. I established you. I gave you all of this. Okay? He doesn't come out first by saying, thus says the Lord, why did you commit adultery with another man's wife? in Psalm 51 which is a psalm generated by Nathan's ministry to David he says against you you only have I sinned now yeah he sinned against Uriah he sinned against Bathsheba he sinned against the whole nation of Israel but ultimately his sin against God this is what this is what we have to understand so David may do something that's sinful, to me. If I retaliate and sin against David, I can't say, yeah, but he deserved it. Ultimately, well, not only am I as bad as he, the greater issue, Tom, is that I am sinning against God by sinning against David. If you commit adultery against Nancy, you are sinning against God by doing that. Yes, you're sinning against her, too. Okay? But it's more than just some sort of you know, personal problem. We, we kind of don't get along. We don't hit it off. Okay? All sin is ultimately and finally sin against God. All right, now look at what happens. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In catechism language, what do we call that? Confession. Confession Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. There is no self-justification, just the honest truth. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. What is that? Absolution. Absolution. Confession has two parts. First, that we confess. Second, that we receive absolution. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his own house. We'll take it just that, that far and conclude these questions here. What does Nathan's ministry to David finally result in? contrition repentance the confession of sins and ministering absolution to him what does the absolution sorry what does the absolution of christ guarantee to the penitent eternal life there you go salvation from sin eternal life What does the absolution of Christ not guarantee in this life? An easy life. life. Or the restoration of things. I mean, if you smash your Rolls Royce because you're drunk, you may not get your Rolls Royce back. If you cut off your arm, you're not going to get your arm back. Okay? So the absolution gives you eternal life. But in this life, it does not guarantee that Humpty Dumpty is put back together again. Some things in this life, either A, cannot be fixed in this life, or B, and more importantly, God has reasons why those things aren't fixed in this life, reasons that serve the cause of salvation. Because, what happens if you go as a pastor to the prison and the prisoner says, Pastor, I finally realized I have sinned a great sin when I murdered David Steinhild. Please forgive me and get me out of here. (laughs) I forgive you, Kathy, for murdering David. And then I go to the warden and the judge, you've got to let him go. He's really, 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 really sorry for his sin. And God forgives him. What is the what was the reason why the incarcerated murderer was oh so sorry and confessed to sin? Pardon me? to To get out of jail. Okay? So if you are, Wally, if you're standing before the judge and he's about to be sentencing you for your high crimes and misdemeanors, don't expect your pastor to be a character witness. <laughs> and, the, and there's a reason for that, because that's not my job to get his sentence reduced. In fact, it may be better off that he serve the, to the fullest extent Uh, of what the law requires for his punishment. Why? Because absolution has to be, faith has to be based not upon what other things am I going to get out of it. That makes uh, Jesus a genie in the bottle. If believing in Jesus doesn't get me what I want, what's the point of believing in him? Okay? But if the person continues to trust in Christ, even if he's in jail for his crimes, there is the testimony to true faith. So what the things that we suffer that are often a consequence of our own foolishness uh, serve, from God's point of view, is to preserve us in contrition and repentance. Okay, That's a difficult lesson, and part of the reason why that's necessary in this life is the corruption of sin is still a part of us, and it won't go away until we're buried and then our bodies are raised on the last day. Then then things will be put back together. Humpty Dumpty will rise from the dead on the last day, but not beforehand. So all of the things that David is made to suffer, including the death of this child, are to strip him of self-reliance so that his faith is singularly focused upon Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Okay? And uh, so... Do you know this passage? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I can't tell you how many times, you know, as a father, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm really sorry for the answer. I forgive you. Now bend over. <laughs> well, if you forgave him, how could you still punish him? Well, those are two different things. Okay? As a Christian father, I had the responsibility to forgive the contrite son. As a father, I had the responsibility to discipline the son. So we live in a world today, and it's crept into the church, where forgiveness means that everything, you know, so the wife who is being abused by her husband repeatedly, year in and year out, she can forgive her husband, and he can confess, and the minister can absolve, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is put back together again. In fact, many a husband uses that as, I've, I'm sorry, I've confessed, you don't forgive me. Now, that's another thing. Forgiving the husband by the pastor or the Christian wife is one thing, what happens in that relationship is quite another, especially if it's been an abusive relationship for years. Okay? Because what matters most is retaining faith in Christ, salvation. That's what matters most. Okay? Not whether or not Humpty Dumpty is put back together again. So that answers the last question on your sheet. Any other questions about the narrative? Yes, Yes. Okay, is there there a a comparison with the fact that Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land? Uh, There are two things I will say about that. The first, Tom, uh, does make it parallel to this. I mean, Moses' sins, his failings, and his shortcomings do not allow him to lead the children of Israel to the promised land. In that sense, there's a similarity here. The second thing, where there is a dissimilarity, although then there's a similarity after that, is that Moses is not allowed to lead them into the promised land because he's not the real redeemer. Christ is. Okay? So also here, I mean, David, as wonderful a king as he was, he's not the real son of David from the tribe of Judah who saves. There's only one. Okay? Other questions or comments there? No, he didn't enter the promised land because the second time dealing with the rock, he struck it rather than speaking to it. The first time he struck the rock, an image of Jesus being pierced in the side, and after that he was to speak to the rock. Instead, he struck it again. But the water, it came. Yeah, when he struck the rock, the first time water came out. After that, he was to speak to the rock and water would come out. It, and that you see, that's parallel to Jesus on the cross. He is struck, blood and water comes out. But we don't continually crucify Jesus through the word and sacraments. The blessings of the water and blood coming out of Jesus' side continue to come to us. So that's part of what that's about. Okay, let's, let's uh, take us into, by summation... One of the nice things about these narratives that are traditional catechism stories is when you, when you explicate the narrative, the text of the catechism becomes obvious, okay? So on page 241 of your Lutheran catechesis, we've got the question that we had last time and we'll ask it now, what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So confession of sin and confession of faith in Christ are the same, because in a confession we say, I am a sinner. As David said, I have sinned. And then Christ is my Savior. That's where penitent faith always leads. A penitent is not simply a person who is really, 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 really sorry. A penitent is the person who is sorry for their sin, who flees to Christ as their Savior. So all forms of confession express what we have come to know and believe is true according to God's word. Now, this first part we have gone through last week, two weeks ago. But David is confessing what is true according to God's word. That was ministered to him by Nathan. Second bullet, the purpose of confession is to receive Christ's absolution for the strengthening of our faith in Christ. And that's why the the suffering may continue because that may serve better the cause of faith than the good life. Because we can make an idol out of the good life. The wealth, the, pre- the, the, the pleasures, the health, maybe sickness, and the loss of your 401k in the stock market or the Great Depression may serve the cause of faith better. Oh, but I don't want that. Well, I understand that. So the purpose of confession is to receive Christ's absolution for the strengthening of our faith. Think of the absolution as the ongoing, I love you from the Lord Jesus. Faith lives from his love and forgiveness as the most important thing. And how many times have I quoted over the course of this past year the mighty fortress hymn, Take they our life, our goods, our fame, our child, our wife, let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won, the kingdom ours remains. And and sometimes the things that we suffer expose the other idols, the many gods of our lives that we might otherwise trust in. Okay, page 253 is where the next two questions are. I'll ask them, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of. As we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Now, the phrase before God includes confession before God in your daily prayers. That's a regular part of the Christian life to confess one's sin to God. It's included in the Lord's Prayer forgive us our trespasses fifth petition. Or in the catechism, the evening prayer, forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong. Or in the divine service, the corporate confession in the divine service is not what the catechism is referring to as before the pastor. Because yesterday morning, and just in a few minutes, I'm not hearing what is particularly troubling Eunice or Bill or Kirsten. We're all confessing generally Almighty God, merciful Father, I have sinned. So the general confession or before God includes also what we do corporately on Sunday morning. But the phrase in the catechism before the pastor envisions private pastoral care and private confession and absolution. Now that's kind of the same thing, but I I distinguish between the two because sometimes a member of the congregation comes to the pastor because they're terribly troubled by something. And then we talk about it and we're there and it comes out what has happened and it's a confession of sin and they're terribly grieved by it and I can speak Christ's forgiving word to them right there on the spot as part of ordinary pastoral care. And then there's the liturgical rite of private confession that we do before the altar which we'll talk about next week. Okay, so before the pastor envisions in the catechism private pastoral care where specific sin is named. Certainly, David, uh, he committed a lot of public sin here, but it was a one-on-one pastor with penitent ministry to David. Now, the next question uh, and the final one, which are these? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? A couple of points here. Notice the ordinary nature of the sins. It's a danger of using this story uh, because David's sins were pretty... Um, grievous in a public way, even even an unbelieving world would recognize that for the President of the United States to use the secret service to commandeer a woman so that he could commit adultery with her in the Oval Office, even the world would consider that grievous. Oh, well, maybe not. <laughs> uh, Maybe the world would even consider murdering the husband to cover up the sin grievous, okay? Um, I tell the story about years ago, well, was 30 years ago, asking catechumens to, giving them an assignment, come next week with a pretend confession so that we can all listen to it, what happens in private confession. And I want it to be pretend so that we'll agree these are not your sins but what you're confessing and they all came back the next week with i shot my neighbor with a double barrel shotgun i you know all of this i did drugs i sold them on the street and so they did all of these quote unquote big sins what i want you to see in the catechism here is the ordinary <coughs> consider your place in life are you a son daughter husband wife or worker you know have you been disobedient have you been unfaithful lazy rude hot tempered quarrelsome That describes me yesterday, okay? The point being is the ordinary sins of life are part of what confession is for, to strengthen you uh, in confidence in Christ's forgiveness, which bears fruit in love for others. Um, Private confession and absolution should not be thought of for what even the world considers to be big sins, Okay, and we've actually covered those terms there. David was impenitent or unrepentant, and then he became a penitent or a repentant sinner by the ministry of the word of God from outside of himself. And he confessed his sin, and Nathan forgave him. All right, any final questions here before we sing our hymn and prepare for the sacrament? Remember how we began, those words of Jesus, and they can be applied to the office of the ministry. Christ Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You're given a pastor not to condemn you, but to save you. When I meet people in public who haven't been in church for a a long time, I try to be Well, what do you think the tact is that I take? Well, Eunice, haven't seen you in church for a while, you wretched, foul sinner. That would be one alternative. Or Mary. Good to see you. How are you? How's Wally, that bloke you're married to? No, I... Okay. They already know the mere appearance of the pastor to someone who hasn't been in church for a long time creates guilt. So I want to extend the genuine warm welcome. Good to see you. How are things going? Okay. So, again, the pastor is sent not to condemn, but to save. Let us sing hymn 614, stanzas 5 through 8. And why don't you stand ahead of time? Him 614, 5 through 8, The Words Which Absolution Give Are His Who Died That We Might Live. The words which absolution give Are His who died that we might live. The minister whom Christ has sent O Almighty God, Merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the Word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the abundant mercy that you this day so richly have provided us, blessing us not only with daily bread for our bodies, but also with heavenly food for our souls. Grant that your living and powerful word may abide in our hearts, working mightily in us to your glory and for our salvation. We commit ourselves to your divine protection and fatherly care. Let your holy angels be with us, that the evil foe may have no power over us. Look in mercy on your church and deliver her from all danger and adversity. By your Holy Spirit, comfort and strengthen all who are in affliction or distress, and grant your abiding peace to us all. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right to give him and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb, who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying he has destroyed death, and by his rising again he has restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. By his death, he has redeemed us from bondage to sin and death, and by his resurrection, he has delivered us into new life in him. Grant us to keep the feast in sincerity and truth, faithfully eating his body given into death and drinking his life's blood poured out for our salvation until we pass through death to the promised land of eternal life. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace. Amen. The blood of Christ shed for you. 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 The blood of Christ. Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed shed blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith, unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Christ shed for you. The blood of 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 Christ shed for you. you. blood of Christ shed for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his Christ and us forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. Hear us, for you live and reign as victor over sin, death, and the devil, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.